Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I get this kind of paralysis um, where you're trying to be all these different things at the same time and unlearn past behaviors. And I, I, I know I'm not the only one that gets stuck there. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The definition of man is changing. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. The sexual revolution has done a lot of damage. And need to talk about more. It's always been sort of like, oh, we do what we want, you know, dudes, whatever. I'm Anna Sale. Dwayne is a 45-year-old man, but these days he's feeling a lot like an awkward teenager. I see a coworker who has an awesome dress, and I say they have an awesome dress, and I spend 30 minutes later going, is that okay? I don't know if that was okay, right? Dwayne is married, a father, and was raised in rural Ohio in a religious family. And he told me it feels like what he learned about how to be a man doesn't apply anymore. What I learned about being a man as a kid, I learned by watching, you know, these older men, you know, blaze a trail where they thought it was supposed to be and getting, you know, halfway down that path and realizing it's terrible. And so I, you know, blunder about blazing my own trail that I hope is better for the person who comes behind me. And so here I am, you know. Dwayne emailed after we asked the men in our audience to answer the question, what's the most confusing thing about being a man today? We asked because we noticed there's a lot of conversation right now about men and how they should be or should not be. But I at least haven't been hearing a lot of conversation with men about that. And we heard back from you that Dwayne is not the only one feeling stuck in this moment of change. I think we're confused about our place. There's a very unclear set of expectations as far as how a man should behave. The confusion comes from being told your definition isn't strong enough. I'm now learning it's okay to cry. But we've given no clear path to strength. I think this is the crisis. There's a vast silence at the heart of the interactions that men have with other men. There's no clear rules, so this gets very, 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 very confusing. We heard from a lot of men that they're feeling a need to change. But men also told us that actually letting go of some of the expectations they grew up with is not easy. That's what a listener named Dre Ray told me. He's 47 now and owns a barber shop and rental properties in Oakland. But he wrote us about when he was just out of high school and selling drugs. He says he had to follow clear rules. As far as being a man, um, being tough, don't let nobody take advantage of you. If you was considered weak, it can lead to you eventually being murdered or kicked out the neighborhood. You can't be over here anymore. You're soft. This is not for you. Did it feel like you had to perform a certain way? Yeah, it did because even though I grew up in that neighborhood, um, the people who sold drugs, they were of a different species. It was like they were real aggressive. I wasn't. I evolved into that. 
when I first started, I was a church boy. I was mm-hmm. raised in the church. I actually sung in the choir. I can't sing, but I was either going to be the usher boy or the choir. So coming from that to this world was traumatic. It was also dangerous. Dre was involved in shootouts. His best friend was murdered. But he kept at it until he was running drug operations in his neighborhood. Money and status was everything, he wrote in his email. Without it, you were a loser, a bum. What if someone had said to you when you're 18 or 19, when you're a young man, like, you know what, it's okay if someone thinks you're soft. Do you think that would have been good advice or bad advice? In that particular environment, and that moment in time, I probably would have said, so what, you think I'm soft or something? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, unless it was someone of a higher economic, social standing to the point where I respected them. Like, okay, Michael Jordan back then was like, I idolized Michael Jordan. If Michael Jordan probably would have said something like that to me, then I might have listened to it. But just the average Joe, no. I would have been like, you must be soft. Dre was arrested when he was 26 and ended up serving three years in state prison. When he got out, he had to learn how to support himself legally. It's a trip when you go from having something to nothing, how people treat you. I was back staying with my grandparents. That was a hard blow for me. I was driving the airport shuttle. I remember one time, my auntie, she, um, I had a 10-speed, and I'm about to ride the 10-speed to work. I didn't even have a vehicle. And then she said when I was coming out my bedroom with the bike on my way to work with the uniform on, which I felt like I looked like a clown, um, she said, and this almost pushed me back into the streets, she said, Andre. And I said, yes. She go, how does it feel? I said, well, it working? She said, no. You had all these fancy cars and all this nice clothing, and now you're on a 10-speed going to work. Ha, ha, ha. And she just fell out laughing. She thought it was the funniest thing. And I remember my grandfather looked at her, and like, really? And then he turned and he looked at me and said, son, don't worry about it. Go to work. There's honor in all work. And I went to work. How important is earning money to you now as in the ways that you think about yourself as a man and a provider? How, how do you think about money? I know that money isn't really that important, but it is important, right? It's like you need it to survive. It's like air and water. But as it relates to me as a man, if I, would, if I didn't have the ability to take care of my family, I think that would weigh on me terribly. When a listener named David in Decatur, Georgia, became a parent, he and his wife decided that she would be the financial provider for their family while he stayed home with the kids. The uh, initial idea that my wife and I had that, you know, well, this will be the obvious choice. And, you know, these gender rules, they really are quite silly. Uh Uh-huh. Well, maybe, but maybe not. That was 19 years ago. Today, David says that even though being a stay-at-home dad was a choice he made freely, for him, it wasn't a good fit. It was clearly not as fulfilling for me as it was for my women friends who were stay-at-home moms. Oh, really? Like, what Um, did you notice 
talking with them. They cared about the intricacies of it and the and and derived some sort of emotional payoff from it that I never got. You know, I was you can you can look at it this way. I was in a job that wasn't making me real happy and I was pretty angry at myself um, about well for a variety of reasons for having made the 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 decision in the first place and then for not being good at you know stiff upper lip just make it through at sport were there other men that you could talk to about this during that time here's the ironic thing um you know people well-meaning lovely people would say oh my friend Bob is a stay-at-home dad. You two should get together. Mm-hmm. And the the internal reaction in my in my head was, you know what? I don't really like stay-at-home dads. Those guys are kind of weenies. You would which, think that. Correct. <laughs> uh-huh. I know. So you never kind of made a made a friend with another guy who was staying home with his kids. Nope. Huh. Absolutely not. And was completely uninterested in doing so. A listener named Stephen Ameo lives outside Detroit, where his wife stays at home with their two kids. He's built a different sort of family than the one he grew up in, where his dad wasn't around at all. He, he was just absent when he left. I mean, I was two, and my first memory of my father, unfortunately, is his hands around my mother's neck. It's almost like a dream when I look back. For Stephen, being a man is all about providing for his family. He works the overnight shift as a manager of a commercial cleaning company. I know I won't ever be able to give my girls all of of what they want tangibly, but I know when they look at their father, they're going to see a man that treats his queen higher than any other woman. They're going to see a man that finds joy in hard work. That's what makes that's what makes a man a man. You got to get up and you got to quit questioning things. Get up and do it. Don't complain what you don't have. Don't complain what you want. Don't complain that you get up and do it. Does it does it feel like for you that to feel that sense of groundedness in your identity as a man that it's been important to have traditional gender roles in your family? Yes. So my wife every morning I wake up a little late because I get home a little late, and she, and she brings me a coffee. You know, we sleep on a fold-out bed, a little small place we call home. And I say, babe, you don't, you don't need to bring me a coffee. She says, it's an honor to, okay? I come home, it's not that I'm not questioned, but I'm respected first. I'm appreciated first. They don't ever say, toughen up, you're tough, you're, come on, be a boy, be a man, like, ever. <laughs> it's horrible, you know? Jack Milligan is a kindergarten teacher in Boston and a trans man. At work, he tries to teach kids that they can be anything, no matter their gender. I want my boys to know if they grow up and they want to, like, you know, be some sort of breadwinner, then they can, but they don't have to. They don't need to do these things. There's roles as nurturers. There's roles as caregivers. There's roles for all sorts of things. But in his own life, now that he's presenting his mail, Jack's learned he has some constraints. Yeah, there's a, a long list of things I'm trying to um, just navigate through. For example, um, when in a grocery store as a man, it isn't as like 
socially acceptable to like wave and smile and talk to small children that you don't know. Whereas when I was presenting as a female, I like if a kid was being goofy, we would smile at each other and like maybe wave and I'd smile at the parent, they'd smile back. And I learned that it doesn't sometimes like feel right. Like I can feel a feeling and that's male performance that I have to like be better at. He doesn't feel that pressure at work, though, especially with his students. To them, what kind of man he is just hasn't been a big deal. When I transitioned three years ago, the kids were just so much better than the adults about everything, about pronouns, about the response. I mean, I literally had just one kid tell me, oh, my mom told me about you and then just gave me a thumbs up. Like, okay, thumbs like, up. let's keep playing. Mm-hmm. Like, that was it. Like, wow, parents are just still like, gee, he, oh, sorry, this, oh, uh. and the kids are just seamless. They just went right about their business and their gender norms are just so blurry and I love it. Well, it's interesting to me, you you talked about the conversations with, with little boys and making sure they know that they have a wide range of what they can be interested in and want to do. Um, does it feel like the little girls have that assumption more built in? And I, I'm possibly, and I feel like there was a push on the, like, girls can be anything, obviously, and that, I, I love that push, and I think remembering to bring the boys along to say they can also be anything, too, I would say that it is easier for girls to be freer than the boys <laughs> right now. When a listener named Charles was a boy, he felt like he never got to choose what kind of guy to be. He remembers being told what being a man meant, and it wasn't good. I grew up in a very, very liberal town, and there were a few family friends and kids on the schoolyard who had been raised in um, a radical feminist environment. Mm-hmm. And so they they would use that, they would use the ideology as a sort of a bludgeon. And and you mean like they would, like a sort of like anti-male behavior? Is that what you mean? Or It was sort of the, you know, you and the patriarchy and da-da-da, you know, and I didn't really understand it. But it, it, was, it was just being used as a taunt, mm-hmm. or at least I absorbed it as a taunt. This is one of the first instances of somebody explaining to me that uh, I was responsible for for people's fear of me. Charles is a big guy. And when he was a teenager, the way his body looked to other people changed faster than the way he saw himself. He wrote us an email about a fight he had with his mom when he was 15. I don't remember what it was about, but um, I remember sort of wishing to make my point and raising my voice probably for the first time. And she just drew back and she was visibly afraid of me. And I, that was, and I was just, I just horrified, I was horrified with myself. Mm-hmm. The idea that this sort of, this body that I'd, I was growing to inhabit at that time could be a, a threatening object hadn't really been a part of my self-image to that yeah. point. It really, the language you used in your email when you said it, it hurts to be the monster. It, it can feel so um, sort of alienating to be seen in a way that's threatening when that's not what you intend. 
Yeah, it's that's probably one of the hardest things is to just be walking around and having people be afraid of you. When have you felt the most lonely in your life? Probably when I was in college and I was very heavy and I had very few friends. And I just, I felt like there was, there was no real chance to be, uh, to be a part of a society. Did you feel angry at that time that you felt so cut out? Absolutely. I mean, it's, and I, I still feel angry when I, you know, it's, it's, my anger is not a, an out of control smashing rage. It's just something cold that I feel inside of me. Mm-hmm. Where have you directed anger? Like, are there, are there people or, or ways, things that you've been angry at? Not individual people. I, I've directed it at, you know, it's, it's, this is, now we're getting really to the crux of it because I do occasionally, when I'm really wallowing in it, find myself being angry, not at any individual woman, but at women in, in general. And I see, I recognize very easily how, how easy and how good it would feel to go down that path of becoming an outright misogynist. How, you know, and, and yeah, I do have to fight that back and understand that it's not, it's not something that is, that, that makes sense. It's not anything that's real. And, and it just helped me understand, like in, in a moment where you're having a feeling you're not proud of, what does it sound like? I wish that people would not be so afraid of me. I wish that people wouldn't hate me. I hate them for hating me. Again, and then I catch myself, uh, you know, a blink of an eye later and recognize that I'm being stupid. But I do feel it. Coming up, are you currently dating, Frederick? Huh. Single, ready to mingle. (laughs) 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 He he might be stung with the family bug. (laughs) A son and his father talking together. You know, I was 41 when I got married. Right, there is a precedent. Yeah. In my defense. (laughs) Yeah. So when we asked the men in our audience what's confusing about being a man today, you had a lot to say. But as we worked on this episode, especially as a mostly female production team, we also wanted to hear from men who don't listen to this podcast. We sent reporters out to talk to men in different American cities and asked the same question, what's confusing about being a man today? And we got really different answers. I can't say that I find it confusing, to be honest. No, I don't think so. Not for me, really. Uh, I feel like being a man is knowing who you are. I want to say that there's anything confusing for me. Being a good man is so simple. We also surveyed more than 1,600 American men in partnership with the data news site 538 and SurveyMonkey. You can find a link to the full results on our website at deathsexmoney.org slash men. But here are a few findings that stuck out to me. 
57% of men surveyed say they rarely or never cry. We asked what men worry about on a daily basis, and from a very long list of options, the top worry was their weight. More than half also reported worrying about money, and a third said in particular they worry about providing for a family. As men, we're kind of supposed to be, you know, the hunters. It's, I, I still have it in my head that the man is the provider and... They're not breadwinners all, so what the hell are they? And when they're worried, many men deal with it on their own. Nearly half said they frequently or sometimes feel lonely. More than 40% said they've never or have rarely asked a friend for personal advice. And more than two-thirds of men say they've never been to see a therapist. That's the case for Dre in Oakland. Unless talking to my cellmate was counseling, I don't think so. <laughs> we also asked about the impact of Me Too in our survey and with the men out on the street. I think the Me Too movement has been like so powerful and strong and awesome in a lot of ways, but it kind of bums me out that like straight men have had to be like villainized in a way. I don't I usually don't ever think about what I say but recently I actually do. I feel now it's a little harder to walk up to women and just start talking to them. They're more standoffish. You know, you see someone who's a man and you don't think of him as a gentleman unless he explicitly acts like it. And when it comes to intimacy, in our survey, the way men reported dealing with consent varies by age. More than 40% of men ages 18 to 34 say they gauge interest by asking for verbal consent compared to less than a third of middle-aged men. Just 15% of men over 65 say they ask for verbal consent. And finally, nearly a quarter of employed American men said in our survey that they'd never heard about the Me Too movement. Again, you can find a link to these survey results on our website at deathsexmoney.org men. quickly give you a little more recommended listening about manhood now. The podcast Reply All from Gimlet recently did an excellent episode about the roots of the involuntary celibate or incel movement. They traced its origins back to a website set up by a shy, queer Canadian woman who was just trying to help people like her learn how to date. It's episode number 120. Go check it out to learn some really fascinating and disturbing history about manhood on the internet today. Again, that's from Reply All, a show that's all about the internet, but really it's about everything, and it's consistently great. I also loved their recent episode about the murky underworld of drug addiction treatment advertising. Listen to Reply All wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. 
We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. In our survey, most men, 6 and 10, said they got their ideas about how to be a good man from the first man they knew, their fathers. Like Frederick. He's 34 and living in Little Rock, Arkansas, where he grew up. He says he looked to his father as a model, even though for him, that left some gaps. I didn't grow up around any out gay men. Uh, Mm -hmm. And... So I couldn't really um, imagine what a life would look like for me based on the men that I was encountering. I could probably think of at least eight or ten folk that was in our immediate area that were, at least to me, they were not secretive. That's Freeman, Frederick's dad. He and his son are nearly 50 years apart in age. When Freeman was growing up in segregated Little Rock in the 30s and 40s, he says he never got explicit instruction for how to be a man. It was just understood that it was about fitting in. I mean, we didn't sit down and have a class in terms of what what it would require (laughs) to be a good man. But, I mean, the conversations that you would hear in talking about... um, who was a good man and who was not a good man. <laughs> the shade. <laughs> <laughs> and which one that you, they, you, were expected to, uh, you were expected to follow that was a conversation that you would, you, would, you would hear. When it came to teaching his two sons how to be men, Freeman wanted Frederick and his brother to be active in the community, just like he'd been taught, which meant that his boys should play football. And so I didn't come to it by native interest. I was trying to be the boy that I, was, I thought that I was supposed to be and probably was afraid that I was failing to be, uh, more so than anything. The, the uh, thing that I was interested in or thought was important was that uh, they not be isolated from their peers in the, in the community. Now, football was the activity in our neighborhood where all their peers were, were you know, they were engaged in that. It's what and everybody so was if doing. If they hadn't have been yeah. engaged in that, they would have been about the only one at home <laughs> after school. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the whole neighborhood. The physical activities that I 
would have pursued probably would have isolated me from uh, my community. There, I, I made requests to take gymnastics lessons. <laughs> Eventually, uh, gymnastics turned into wanting to take dance lessons. And I, n- I remember both wanting to explore my body in ways that didn't necessarily feel overtly male, uh, mm-hmm. and or masculine. I wanted I wanted to begin to sort of explore my body in that way, and I wanted sort of the privacy of, of that. And I uh, most of the spaces uh, that I think my dad would have encouraged me to participate in did not allow for that kind of privacy. Frederick quit football after his freshman year with his dad's blessing. He left Arkansas for college and just moved back earlier this year. Freeman also left when he was a young man. He was one of the first Peace Corps volunteers. And Frederick says he could feel how that time away shaped his father as a man. Dad, I, I always liked hearing you talk about um, sort of having to transition the perspectives that you, you gained while you were abroad back to Arkansas. Like, I feel like throughout my life, I've never felt... Um, you exerting a lot of pressure to be a certain type of man. And I just wondered how you you came by that expansiveness. I never extended to others the privilege of painting the box that I was in. Mm -hmm. And so I certainly didn't want to try to paint that box for somebody else. And then remember when, when we were growing up, we were children. I mean, there was a lot of boxes people tried to put us in. Uh, that people tried to put our community, the community I grew up in, tried to put it in, in a box. Hmm. I always felt that um, you limit yourself because if you put them in a box, you got to stay there to hold them in the box. <laughs> Otherwise, they'll, hmm. they'll just get out. And so to me, that would be wasted energy. So. Mm-hmm. I always just felt that uh, you you give the person a support uh, as to and let them go the direction that they mm-hmm. that that they wanted to go or that they felt they needed to go. Just be yourself. I feel like is really bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like people just say, "Oh, you know, just be yourself. You'll eventually find someone." And I feel like that's really like. Uh, not true, <laughs> to say the least. Alex just moved home to San Diego after finishing college, and he's feeling like he isn't measuring up as a man. I think in many ways I have not been a very successful man. Um, you know, I haven't really dated much. Uh, you know, I'm still a virgin of age 23. I don't really have a job. You know, I'm not exactly the most physically fit person in the entire world. So a lot of these things that you traditionally associate with, with masculinity, you know, I don't really have any of those kind of things. Part of the problem, Alex told me, is he spends a lot of time online, where there's a lot to compare yourself to. I think the Internet's the worst thing that's ever happened to this generation of people. Um, I feel like it's kind of distorted a lot of the ways I see things. It's given me a lot of self-confidence issues about being a man. Um, and, you know, it's shaped my thinking because on the Internet, you know, for many, many years, up until recently, it was a very male-dominated space. You know, maybe not by numbers, but culturally. And so because of that, you see a lot of really toxic kind of ideologies floating around. It's really easy for them to gain a lot of traction. Is that something you consume? 
yeah, kind of like people consume bad television. Um, the way I describe it, it's kind of an entertainment for me. One of the things Alex reads is The Red Pill, a thread on Reddit where men ridicule women, deride feminism in general, and share advice on how to become what they call alpha males. Red Pill fundamentally believes that every single man, no matter who he may be, can work out and can improve themselves and actually be successful with women. So, you know, Red Pill's danger is that it gives good advice, and so people always end up seeing that their advice kind of works uh, and then falling into the, the wider ideology along with it. Have you ever have you ever worried that you might fall into that? No. No. What do you get out of it? Uh, I'm just curious about the way these people think. It's just fascinating, especially to see the way that they, they've evolved over the years. But a lot of it also comes from maybe not feeling quite as alone in the world, knowing that men out there are also struggling. Uh, maybe they come to the wrong answer, but it's not just me who kind of feels a little bit adrift. Uh, that's probably more of what it is. When a listener we're calling Luke was a young man in Los Angeles, he found his sense of identity as a man not on the internet, but in the bedroom. At that point, my sex drive was all-consuming. How many people I was sleeping with, um, sort of like that became my measure of manhood. Every place I went, I, I was looking at who was the most attractive, who might be available. Uh, seeing a very attractive woman uh, was a great turnout of something strongly desired. Um, and if she was not available, there was sort of resentment. And for me, there was self-put-down about that, too. And so just so I have a sense, like, say, like, in one of your most sexually active years, how many different women would you say you slept with? Hmm. 20 or 30. When you think back on that time... And the way that that the way that you thought about sex and and having sex with women are are there things that you feel regret about? I feel regret for myself in that I was so insecure that I was missing a lot of life, that there was so much more to be seen in the world than just sizing up how pretty a woman was when I walked into a room or who was the prettiest woman in the room or something like that. So. It, looking back upon it, it was kind of shallow, but it was still a, a, a deep drive that uh, kind of controlled me. Do you think when you were entering rooms and sizing up women's attractiveness, do you think the women could tell? I'm sure they could. I'm sure they could. I, I don't think I was one who leered a lot, but I think um, people can tell when they're being looked at and looked up and down and, and judged. Does that feel embarrassing to think about? Yes, that does feel embarrassing. And, it, and uh, it wasn't something I necessarily was aware of at the time. But looking back, yes, I think that makes people uncomfortable as it should. How important is sex to you now at 71? That's one of the big identity issues that's faced me. It's actually the reason I responded um, to the call that you put out, um, which I didn't expect to. I just sort of found myself sending this email because I'm finding my own uh, big transition in my 70s because um, around sex, it is totally different. 
when I got into my certainly late 60s and now, my sex drive has diminished to a very low level. And then on top of that, a few years ago, I had to have surgery for prostate cancer, and I lost that sexual ability. Fortunately, because I don't have the drive uh, to do much about it, but it's gone. And so as a man, part of what defined me for so many years, and I'm sure defines most men, is simply not there. Do you think it's changed the way you move through the world? It, It has a bit. I realize that I'm a sexually impotent older man. And so I'm really aware of that. Um, the sense of moving around partly invisible because I'm an older guy and partly being reminded that I'm also impotent. I'm struck by how, how um, you, you said the word impotent without pause and that word is so charged. Um, is that a, a word that you have easily embraced? Why do you use that word? Because that is reality. And, you, you know, you face reality uh, if you're ever going to, if you're ever going to be, if you're going to be healthy with anything, you face what's real. And what's real for me is that impotence. And so I don't deny it. That's, that's what I have right now. Impotence can be physical or existential, just a feeling of helplessness as a man. That's what a listener named Cisco wrote about in his email to us. Not his helplessness, but his dad's. When I think of my dad, he's sort of a diminutive guy. Like, he's not very large in stature. But I don't picture him as as small. And growing up, he, he put a lot of emphasis on providing for us and keeping us safe. But when Cisco was in elementary school, his home was broken into while the whole family was there. This wasn't just a robbery. They were tied up and held at gunpoint. No one was hurt, but Cisco says the experience scarred his dad. He did every everything that he possibly could in the like the time after that to to make sure that we were safe, that we, to try to make us feel safe. So he bought guns and had guns around the house. Uh, we did a, we installed an alarm system. We had floodlights put around our house that we turned on religiously. And so, you know, we did, we did all these things to, to try to feel safe. And it, you know, it didn't, it, it was always, it always felt a little bit better, but it never quite felt like enough. Was there a time in your life when you realized, like, I need to change some definitions in how I think about manhood or masculinity? Or, or was it more just kind of this is an outgrowth of the kind of, the kind of kid you were and, and who you grew up to be? I think, <laughs> I feel like this is going to go down a rabbit hole a little bit, but we'll, we'll see where, where okay. it takes us. Okay. Um, this is, when I was in middle school and high school, I spent a lot of time at church, a lot of time in youth group, all those kinds of things. And my faith has always been something that's really, really important to me. And the thing that's really complicated definitions 
has, has honestly been thinking about the way that, that people talk about God. Mm. And especially since we get to where we throw father language in with God language and then all powerful and all those kinds of sort of uh, superlative terms. At some point I, I really wanted to reimagine some of that stuff because I don't, see enough capacity in those terms. That like the words that you've had for God and what God has meant in your life have felt too small and then to expand those is to also expand how you think of yourself as a man. Yeah. That maps onto this to this conversation pretty easily. I'll ask honestly, like, do women have conversations about what it means to be a woman? This is Dwayne again, from the start of the episode. I feel, not directly in those words, but there's a a lot around work, motherhood, Mm -hmm. you know, ambition, caregiving, which I feel like I know is really about, we're talking about what it is to be a woman, but we don't say, tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And that's the reason sort of I I, I poked at that just a little yeah. bit because um, I don't think of it as conversations about how to be a man. You kind of learn what you're supposed to do, but nobody nobody tells you anything. You know, my my father when he got angry he yelled. Um, uh, his father when he got angry he yelled and, and threw things. Um, the just there was a, always sort of this hint of justification <laughs> that. Um, uh, that his father was worse, hmm. and somehow his improvement was better and forgivable. Um, like that makes it okay. And then one one last question, and that is when you think about being a man now versus being a man in your father's generation, um, do you think it's gotten easier or harder? I'm going to say harder, and the only reason I'm going to say harder is when you're not self-aware, it's fine. (laughs) When you don't realize you're the asshole in the room, it's fine, right? When you don't – when you don't have people pointing out that your bad behavior is bad, there's nothing wrong. Thank you to all the men who shared their stories with us as we worked on this episode. You can see all our coverage, including a link to the full results of our survey with 538 at deathsexmoney.org men. And check out their show, the 538 Politics Podcast, for more stories about the numbers behind our changing culture and society. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Stephanie Joyce, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Special thanks to Dan Boyce and Ian Koss for their help on this episode, and to Wyoming Public Radio and the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
Tell us your thoughts on this episode using the hashtag ManhoodNow, or you can email us at deathsexmoney at WNYC.org. And on July 11th, we're going to continue this conversation about manhood today live on the radio. CNN's W. Kamau Bell will join me, and we'll take calls from you. It'll be broadcast on public radio stations across the country and streamed on WNYC.org at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Again, that's Wednesday, July 11th. One thing we heard again and again is how awkward it can be for men to talk to each other about being men. But Jack told me when he transitioned, the words came easy for his dad. The only thing that has changed in our relationship is that he no longer calls me like, all right, love you, hon. He's like, all right, bud, I love you. You know, like he changed one word. <laughs> but, bud, I like that. Bud, yeah, that's the, I guess that's the term for fathers, like, bud. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.